0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's edition of the About to Review podcast. Here to amplify diverse voices in media, I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. You can find the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is listed on Apple Podcasts as well as every other platform out there. You can also stream the episodes directly from the website abouttoreview.com. Follow the podcast on social media at About to Review on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.com slash Review every review and like and thumbs up and follow definitely helps and i am very appreciative when that happens on this week's episode i will be releasing releasing that is not the right word i wanted to use i will be reviewing two new releases is what i meant to say in english uh those two films will be it chapter 2 as well as the goldfinch and i will i will also be talking about Brenton City Comic Con, which happened this past weekend. So before I go into those reviews, we will go to the original theme song created by Damien Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Together. Why I had somebody reach out to me very uh, lovingly, and they were like, so you're not doing geek news anymore? To which I say, first, thank you for reaching out to the show. Make sure you do that on all of your social media channels or at aboutreview at gmail.com. Uh, yes, I will, get, I will be getting back to kind of the geek entertainment news section, which I normally do at the beginning of the episode. The past few episodes, I have not really spent too much time on that because I am still kind of playing catch up with with all these reviews. Now that I am back on track for a bit, then yes, soon I will be getting back to that section of the show, but this is yet another episode without that section. So to that person, I say you will hear that section again soon, my dear friend and listener. So, right into the first review of this week's episode, and that is for It Chapter 2, directed by Andy Muschietti. I always feel like I am pronouncing that wrong, and I tried looking up interviews to have, like, where I could see him saying it, because part of my brain wants to say, like, Muschietti, or something like that, give it some Italian flair, because it has a double consonant, consonant at the end. I have no idea. So Andy Muschietti, I'm just going to call him Andy from here on out. So he directed this just like he directed the first chapter, which it was not titled that, but it from a couple of years ago. Of course, the screenplay or the novel was from Stephen King and the screenplay was Gary Doberman. So this picks up approximately 27 years. Well, actually, it picks up with a flashback to the first movie. And then a flash forward 27 years where we get to catch up with the losers from the first movie all grown up 27 years later. And the cast is easily the best part about this movie. This was cast not only perfectly when it comes to the physical representations of the young actors, but when it comes to actually like feeling that emotional connection with the original characters, they crushed it. It was so good. So just kind of run down those very notable names. Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader, Isaiah Mustafa, Jay Ryan, who I did not really know much about beforehand. He was about the only one. Uh, Andy Bean, James Ransom, Bill Skarsgård, of course, returns as as Pennywise. And then we have the cast of characters from the original all of the kids so that adult cast is so very very solid and when it actually shows like the the flashbacks or kind of melding the characters from their past to our present or their present it just works uh and one thing with that that I will say that was a little bit weird and something that they have talked about in interviews before the hardest one that they had to kind of work with was Finn Wolfhard. Between the filming, there were a couple years. In between there, he did Stranger Things, you know, season three. He has this. He is in the next movie I'm going to be reviewing, which is The Goldfinch. Uh, Maturity hit this kid like a ton of bricks. He grew about 10 inches, and he looks like a young man. What they had to do because of that difference in filming gap, because he was busy doing other things is they had to, this sounds crazy, but it is true, they had to digitally de-age Finn Wolfhard. Yes, they had to digitally de-age a teenager to make him look younger. And unfortunately, it shows. It is not as bad as with, like, Justice League, when Henry Cavill had a mustache that they had to CGI over and it had this weird, silly putty type of look to his face. Finn Wolfhard in this, not only is he wearing these big Coke bottle glasses, which already kind of distort, you know his eyes, which of course, is, is part of his character, but his facial facial features look rubbery. Like they, they look off because they are. They had to do this because if not, the rest of the kids look, you know, 12, 13. He looks 17 or 18. So that was a little bit weird, and that I think is the only time that that transition from current adult actor to child actor and it not quite working is, is kind of present. But other than that, again, like I said, this film picks up 27 years later. Anybody who has dared to read the book, all 1138 pages of the book, you know kind of what happens where every 27 years Pennywise returns in some way, some fashion. And now the losers have to go back to Derry where they all moved out of, except for Isaiah Mustafa's character of Mike, everybody moved out of Derry. And like in other Stephen King books, when you move away from the source, we, we will call it, you tend to forget things. You, you forget what happened. You forget, you know, who you were friends with and important moments. So as chaos starts erupting in Derry the town again Mike starts making some calls to his former best friends who he has not spoken with in 27 years and each of them kind of forgot not just about him but about everybody else so when they hear his voice again they all have very different reactions and not necessarily his voice when he when they find out who he is they're like Mike Mike who And then you see this realization sweep across their face. Some people, like Bill Hader's character, who plays Richie, he throws up. Like he has a physical reaction to this. Same with uh, James McAvoy. Bill, like, talks about his heart, which just felt like it was pounding out of his chest because reality starts coming back. You know, they start remembering these things. So they get all, they get back together. You know, they get the band back together to go to Derry to fight. Pennywise, once again, even though they do not really remember it happening in the first place. Here is the thing. So, right off the bat, the first movie was 150 minutes. So, just north of two hours. And it was one of my favorite horror films of that year. It was genuinely terrifying. The things that they were doing, the visuals, the tone, the music... It worked. It just gelled together really well. I think, again, capped by those performances of the young actors. This movie is 170 minutes, which is very long, like almost three hours long. So combine these two, and that leads you to five and a half hours, give or take, like 5.3 you know, hours to tell the story from an 1138-page novel. My issue with that is that this third movie felt like they had about 800 pages of the novel that they needed to cram in there and show us everything. Why? No idea. So many of these flashbacks that we get, so many of the character-building stories they do do not really make sense. The movie starts off with this really weird interaction where they shows these two young guys at a carnival. You know, these two, two young men are a couple, some young person starts saying some homophobic stuff to them. They walk off, they end up getting attacked by these same guys. And there's this horrific, like homophobic beating of these two men One of them gets thrown into the river where he sees Pennywise, or rather gets, yeah, saved, quote unquote, from the river by Pennywise. Uh, His partner then sees this and is like, yay, he is saved. Mm, Not really, because Pennywise then takes a big bite out of the dude's chest. Why? Like, that was the weird thing, is the reintroduction of Pennywise in the modern day, we get essentially two different things we get that interaction which is in the first eh, 10 minutes of the film and then we get this interaction with this little girl who has um, like a wine spot on her face a birthmark on her face we see this little girl we see the interaction she goes under the bleachers at a football game of course lured by Pennywise you know and he was like no one wants to be my friend I know what it's like to look different and of course she initially is like uh, no, you are a scary weird dude in the shadows. I'm not going anywhere near you. But because he is a creepy clown who has some sort of charisma, he then attracts her closer and, of course, eats her. Why? Uh, again, we, I do not understand. We have these two different attacks on two very different groups of people in ways that do not really set it up for the losers coming back to dairy, Like, if it were just a little girl, sure, that was how the first movie started. You know, kids started getting lost or kidnapped or missing. Turns out, of course, it was Pennywise. If they had just gone with that, sure, it it would have made more sense. But to have this homophobic beating in the beginning as the reintroduction of Pennywise was just odd. And then we also have this weird subplot Of Bill Hader's character, Richie, having this deep, dark secret that he might be homosexual as well, but it never goes anywhere. It never does anything. It never establishes it it one way or another. So why even have that in there? If they were doing that and Pennywise was playing on that fear like he does of somebody knowing your deepest, darkest secret and fear, absolutely play towards that strength make it part of the film, make it work. Instead, it is just there for no reason. So that in and of itself was, was kind of weird. And the other thing, continuing with his trend from the first movie, Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise is terrifying. <laughs> like his physical acting is similar to that of like Doug Jones. Who was Abe Sapien in the Hellboy films, who has done so much character work? Uh, Pan's Labyrinth. He played a bunch of characters in that. When you have this tall, lanky actor who can really just twist his body and contort in just ways that make your eyes uncomfortable, ways that just has this visceral reaction, like somewhere in our lizard brain, you know, hemisphere where just something about it, it is like when spiders move. There was some study done by some anthropologists or sociologists where they were talking about the reason that the movement of certain animals bothers us so much is because deep in our lizard brain, like Cro-Magnum brain, that type of movement is hard for us to understand. And that is what scares us. So Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise, yeah, he does that all the time and is really good at it just by standing there dropping his shoulders and just kind of jerking a little bit terrifying why then in this movie when you have such a gift in Bill Skarsgård in physical performance why use so much CGI and take away from that performance that he was giving. I will not, I, I, I do not understand that. I will never understand that. Lean into the practical effects because it works. Even when, just like we see in the first one, when he goes to open his mouth and you see row after row after row of terrifying teeth, which of course is CGI, but because of his performance and because you can still see part of him through that makeup, th- those are the most terrifying moments this movie when the kids when the adults start coming back to dairy they start remembering more things they start then having visions they start having all these recollections start happening but almost all of it is CGI almost all of it feels fake and gummy and they're not actually interacting with anything it takes away from that terror that I felt in the first one the other thing that was a problem, or that I had a problem with with this movie, doing a horror movie like this, where you do not just rely purely on jump scares, when they do like a triple take, where the, mu- where the music crescendos, it builds, it builds, we see a character look to his right, ah, oh, phew, nothing is there. But then he slowly starts going to the left, ah, oh, phew, nothing is there. And then suddenly it is right behind him. That type of triple take is very clever, and It works. So we get a few of those moments, but they're so interspersed with 20 minute sections of nothing happening of a flashback to a scene that again, does not move the story forward that by the time the next terrifying moment happens, I had forgotten I was watching a horror movie and it, that, that blows my mind. One of the Blumhouse things that they do the Blumhouse Studios, that is, 90 minute horror films where you never feel completely comfortable, where every minute you're waiting for that next thing, or every minute, even if something benign is happening, something in the background moves just a little bit to keep you engaged. In this, there would be a genuinely terrifying moment where his mouth opens, we see the teeth, or he contorts his body, or somebody is seeing their nightmare. And then and so you tense up, you know, you ball your fist together and then it goes away. And then it is over 20 minutes for the next thing. So you relax, you kind of wonder where the story is going. You wonder why they're doing this flashback and you just start thinking too much. And that sounds weird. I know that sounds weird, but you relax too much. And I think that is the biggest downfall with this film is those moments of relaxation were way too common. Like, it was just happening all the time. And that just that takes away from the performances, it takes away from the genuine terror of the film. One, you know, one of the... I will give two kind of actor highlights. Uh, Jessica Chastain as Beverly is phenomenal. Like, she really sells the performances, and it also helps that some of her terrifying scenes when the characters all have to go on their individual missions to do a thing, to get a MacGuffin item, her scene where she is in this bathroom and blood starts coming in. And that is a physical effect. Like that is a practical effect. You can see her pushing away this liquid and getting soaked in her clothing. That is terrifying. And she is so, so good in that scene and so many others that I, I really was impressed with that. The other person is Jay Ryan, who, again, is this actor who I did not know much about. He plays the adult version of Ben, who, similar to, like, Jerry O'Connell, you know, is kind of the the young round boy who then grows up to be super handsome. Uh, his character and Jessica Chastain's character, Beverly, have this phenomenal moment where they are both on those MacGuffin journeys and having these nightmarish things happen to them, but they have to find each other in this. You have the physical practical effect of Jessica Chastain's character going through this blood and liquid juxtaposed by Jay Ryan's character going through like sand and dirt that none of it looks real. Not a grain of that sand looks practical. And so it was weird to have these two (laughs) characters interact in such different situations and such different levels of detail but those two I love their interaction Bill Hader is phenomenal he is such a great actor he does the comedy correct he does the suspense he does the genuine horror bits that was really good James McAvoy of course is great as always Isaiah Mustafa this is kind of his first big movie actually this might let me look this is his first movie I think this might be his first movie those people who do not know Isaiah Mustafa by name, think of the Old Spice guy. And think of the, look over there, now look at me. Yeah, that is him. So let me see, he has done uh, a movie here and there, but this definitely is his first like big vehicle. He is good, but his character, who is kind of the most eccentric out of all of them, because he stayed in Derry, he knows what happened, he remembers what happened and had to bring them back, he gets some interesting things to do, but you can kind of see that he needs some work. And that is not a knock on him, it's just when you are up against and playing against Bill Hader, James McAvoy, Jessica Chastain, those are some tough people to to play off of and hold your own. So he does, but you can kind of see some some chips in the armor a little bit. But overall... As I was watching this film, I kept forgetting what the last scary thing was. I kept forgetting how scared I was from the first movie because there was just so much going on that I just did not care about. And for every one or two things that this movie did right, like that bathroom scene with Jessica Chastain, there was a huge disproportionate amount of wrong things they did. If this had been a tight 90 minutes as opposed to three hours where it never let you feel relaxed or if it did it was for a moment or two it would have been a much more successful film uh so yeah and again if you if you read the book you know how it ends if you remember the miniseries from the 90s you know how it ends so I will not spoil that I just truly wish that they had given Bill Skarsgård the ability to show his physical acting more than they did because the CGI killed it for me. Like, it just really took me out of it every time, especially because I saw how good he could be. That little smile he does where he pulls up the corners of his mouth, that is not a practical effect. He does that in real life. So it is not like, you know, Jack Nicholson and Batman where they had to put some things in his mouth to make that kind of rictus grin. No, Bill Skarsgård, like, that is his thing. So, uh, it just uh, that they, they did him dirty, and they took away his ability to give that physical performance, and that was just rude. Uh, so, my official rating for IT Chapter 2, uh, yikes, uh, this, this is a, a bad, because there are elements in this that, th- there, were, there were moments, and I, I just think with a second pass at editing, trim this down, and it would be a very solid movie, but at almost three hours, way too long. Way, way, way too long. So, It Chapter 2 gets a bad from me. Moving on to another film that is very long. Two hours and thirty minutes that felt like five uh, hours, that is. Not minutes. Five hours. This is The Goldfinch, based off of the 2013 Pulitzer Prize winning book by Donna Tartt. This movie stars, uh, again, Finn Wolfhard as young Boris, not as young Boris, as Boris, who becomes the best friend of uh, a young Theo, who we see, and again, we see this in the trailer, uh, Oaks Fegley uh, is the version of young Theodore that we see and get to know. He is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art with his mother. There is a terrorist attack. And a huge bomb goes off that decimates part, massive parts of the museum. Many people are killed. He survives. Uh, his mother does not. So through that, he ends up staying with a family, not a family friend, a school friend, uh, whose mother is Nicole Kidman. And uh, the dad, I cannot find him up here. Uh, yeah, does not matter. So he ends up living with this very, very wealthy New York family and just kind of has, has to do with processing these emotions. Through it all, his deadbeat dad, played by Luke Wilson, shows up in the picture. We get a kind of surrogate father figure in Jeffrey Wright, who plays Hobby in this film. This, this book, I had to look this up, is 738 pages. Just like with It Chapter 2, it felt like they needed to include everything from the book. And yet, even with including everything from the book, which I do not know because I never read it, this movie is one of the most convoluted, boring, bland, astonishingly bad films I have seen in a very long time. We are supposed to latch on to, to young Theodore, young Theo, who has gone through this traumatic, horribly traumatic experience. But at the same time, like there still seems to be something off. There still seems to be some sort of hesitancy, in my opinion, to care about this character. When we flash forward, which actually it starts off in the current time and then flashes back to him as a kid, It starts off with Ansel Elgort, who is a great actor. I I have been very impressed with almost everything he has done. I say almost everything because this movie was trash. So it starts off with him in this hotel room in a very film noir-esque type of situation where he is narrating over himself as he looks over the window and he looks at newspapers and he pours himself vodka and he is just angsty beyond belief. It felt like an independent film, like a student film a college student film where the only direction the director gave to Ansel Elgort was angst. No, 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 more angst. Even more angst because we just see him, you know, listfully looking through these windows as snow lightly dances down and then time lapse goes by and then it is nighttime and the whole time he is narrating over top. And it has an interesting feel because it does kind of feel very film noir-esque Then that whole thing goes away. The only time we get that film noir-esque type of interaction again is at the very end. The whole time in between, it tries to be 10 different movies. It starts off very film noir. Then it goes into childhood trauma and PTSD and how to deal with that. Then it goes into a romance. Then it goes into redemption. Then it goes into a heist movie. Then again, and it was like, what are you trying to do? These constant back and forth flashbacks, which again, it chapter two in this movie are very similar with that, they would go to these flashbacks that would not do anything. I mean, again, as good as Finn Wolfhard is, and he is very good, as Boris, this you know kind of foreign exchange student, when Theo's deadbeat dad, Luke, takes him from New York and brings him out to Vegas where... His dad is just a gambler. His his dad's girlfriend? Wife? I'm not quite sure if they ever explained it. Played by Sarah Paulson, who is just a cocaine-sniffing, just rough-around-the-edges type of lady. You know, he is pulled into this lifestyle going from the opulence of a very wealthy New York family to then the middle of Las Vegas. But why do I care. And and one of the, the big things, one of the big, uh, I, I hesitate to say even plot points, because there are 50 different plot points, is this painting, The Goldfinch, which his character steals. Like, in all of the destruction of the museum, he steals this painting, secrets it away everywhere he ends up moving. So, this kid... Steals a priceless painting, priceless artifact for his own reasons. Sure. His mom died, blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. So he has this priceless artifact the whole time with him. We see him getting heavy into drug abuse, starting from a young age, continuing on through his adult years. During the heist part of the movie, we see him commit some very heinous acts. And at the end of this film, and I will not spoil it even though I feel like I should because nobody should see this movie, at the end of the film nothing really happens. It is as if everything we just watched in the entire two and a half hours did not matter. And ethically it truly bothered me because this just felt like a very well-to-do upper middle class, if not Lower high class. I mean, they have a maid at this place, at this family where he is staying. So incredibly wealthy, you know, surroundings. This young white boy who has this traumatic thing happen becomes this adult white man who gets away with heinous acts and has no consequences. Nothing, nothing bad happens to him and i just that that ethically just bothered me so much and it was like how are we going to watch you be this character who makes terrible decisions who does many many wrong things and is constantly not changing even through the end he never really changes but he gets a happy ending and nothing bad happens that bothers me it was just a huge cop out and i i just it was it was bad. It was so, so very bad. As a non-professional film critic in my movie-going years that I have been on this planet, I have never walked out of a film. And as a professional film critic, I will not walk out of a film. I owe it to the artist to sit through there, to take it all in, to really absorb the art that they put out. In saying that, this was the first movie in decades where I truly wanted to walk out. I was so disengaged. I was so bored, relentlessly bored, and did not care about these rich, white problems that were going on on screen. It just... I was done about the second act, and there were still 45 minutes left to go. So, that was just bizarre. I will say, (laughs) a good thing about this movie, Roger Deakins is the cinematographer and Roger Deakins shoots a hell of a film. I mean, it is, it is beautiful. It it truly is beautifully shot and it is just a damn shame that the rest of it is just so very bad and boring. Again, I talked about the stilted dialogue and the clunky dialogue in last week's episode. This takes it to a different level. Because again, through all of these interactions with the characters, I genuinely was not feeling anything. I was restless in my seat. I just could not wait for this movie to be over. And and I hate saying that because again, I, I want to support an artist's vision. And I did. And I sat through it. And I, I, I wish that I had not gone to the screening. It was almost three hours That I will never get back. We see parts of these flashbacks. That never have to do anything with the movie. There's like this weird interrogation scene. With Theo when he is a kid. That we think might go somewhere. Nope never goes anywhere. There's a pseudo villain introduced in the third act. Never goes anywhere. We never know what happens. I do not care what happens. This movie is. Is just so so bad. Actually no it is not bad. What I'm giving. My official rating for The Goldfinch is ugly. If you read the book, maybe you will care about this movie. If you have not read the book, watch the trailer and then do not watch the movie. Because this is two and a half hours of mess. Ugh, so bad. So bad. Okay, moving on to a palate cleanser of something that actually I did enjoy quite a bit. So Renton City Comic Con. Uh, The fourth, I believe, Renton City Comic Con happened uh, this past weekend at Renton Technical College uh, here in Renton, or not here in Renton, Washington, in Renton, Washington, uh, south of Seattle. This was my second year covering uh, this convention, and it continues to grow. And what I like about that growth is it is not growing exponentially. It is not something where... You go one year, and you're like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. Second year, bigger. Third year, massive. Like, this is growing in steps and not leaps and bounds, and I really appreciate that. I really respect that as well. I mean, it sounds cliche, but you got to walk before you run. And as much as I believe that this con can definitely get bigger and do bigger things, I love that they are expanding and getting bigger every year but still maintaining that same feeling. One of the amazing things about this convention that I have never seen anywhere else when it comes to a convention, on the last day, which unfortunately I was only able to go to one day of this. um, I went on Sunday. On Sunday, at the end of the convention, the closing ceremonies, which was, again, unique. Sometimes there will be, you know, closing party or something at, at a bigger con. The closing ceremonies... For Renton City Comic Con or RenCon, everybody was just in one of the panel rooms. Anybody who who wanted to go, who was still on site, got into a panel room with the organizers of RenCon, with the volunteers of RenCon, with the panelists of RenCon, with the cosplay uh, award winners and everything, and just the guests of Emerald City con- or of Renton <laughs> City Comic Con, and just talked about the con, not just the con that you know, we just experienced over the weekend. But what they plan on doing next year, and it was not just, hey, uh, thanks everybody for coming out and uh, we did some stuff this year and next year we're going to have some bigger stuff. Okay, bye. It was, this is what we did this year. This is why we did it this year. This is what we plan on next year. What do you guys want to see? You know, what is something that would be important to you? That was incredible because it just shows that this is not just a convention for the fans. This is truly a convention of the fans. The fact that the fans and the people attending could give critical feedback to the people organizing it right there, five feet away, was incredible. I, I, that blew me away. And it was not hollow. It was not like the organizers, if there was a constructive criticism or if there was just something positive when it was like, hey, I really liked the science lectures that you did? Are you going to be doing more of that? And can you do more of that? Those are things that the organizers pay attention to and will actually implement at the next one. They take that feedback seriously. And I I love that. Uh, Speaking of panelists and science, so I was able to do a couple interviews uh, while I was on site. Again, I was only able to go for a few hours just because of some other commitments and some other issues that I had that weekend. So I did go for a few uh, hours on the Sunday of the con and I was able to interview a couple people. Uh, one of which being Jen Cohn who plays or who's a voice actor uh, and she most recently did Farah for Overwatch. So we had a really fun conversation just not just about voice acting but fashion and the way those two worlds intersect in ways that you might not expect. So that was a great conversation. I also sat down with Jen Hammond, who is another voice actress. She has done stuff for BattleTech, among other things, and Dota 2. She is also a local uh, actress. She is in a film called The Parish, which a bunch of my friends have been involved in for the past couple years. So I talked to her for a little bit. And unfortunately, with both of those two that I just mentioned, we're in kind of a tight scheduling Window. So those interviews were pretty short. Uh, we had great conversations, but they were pretty short. And also, huge shout out to my good friend, uh, Dyer from the Northwest Nerd podcast, for being the board operator during those interviews. They had a great, Northwest Nerd had a great booth set up in the middle of the con floor where you could just, if I was interested in interviewing somebody, I could go and talk to them and then bring them to the booth where Dyer would mix and master the episode right there, or the interview, right there on the boards. So he gets a producer credit on this episode. So make sure to add that to your professional resume, Dyer. Uh, So that was just really great. So big shout out to Nick and Dyer and Brandon uh, from the Northwest Nerd crew for setting that up. I love that setup and I really hope to work with them together at another con and do something like this. So because it was at kind of a booth in the middle of the con and they had a schedule, It was just kind of back-to-back, so I only got a chance to talk to them for a bit. On the flip side of that, sitting down with my friend Stephen C. Smith uh, for the second year in a row, I talked to him after the closing ceremonies when they were actually, like, literally breaking down the room around us. We talked for about 40 minutes uh, because he is amazing and nobody else was around. Like, we were just in the room... After the closing ceremony, I had all my gear with me. We had not been able to get connected earlier during the weekend. So I was like, hey, man, I was like, you have some time? And he was like, I always have time for you. And that made me feel special. He is awesome. He is a really good friend. So, yeah, that part of the episode uh, that will be on about to interview with those three interviews, that will be dropping later this week. And so, yeah, so it is very skewed as far as the time that I was able to give to. Uh, the two women that I interviewed versus Steven, uh, but that just had to do with with scheduling. So, uh, but yeah, definitely look forward to those interviews. That, again, like I said, will be on an episode of About to Interview uh, coming up very soon. And there will be a video component to that uh, that will be on YouTube, so definitely check that out. Uh, But yeah, so RenCon, huge shout-out to all of the organizers. I would start naming them, but then I would be really scared of missing people and I hate doing that so from everybody from the board of directors at Rencon to the volunteers to all of the media connections to the the fans who are there like this is just a great family convention that was just it is run in a way that I have never seen a convention run before and that level of feedback and connectivity is incredible so definitely check out uh, Rencon it is just com. I will put the links to them as well in the description below. All right. So a quick rundown of this week's reviews. So it chapter two, uh, I gave a bad two because there was parts of a good film in there, but it was just buried in 20 minutes of boredom between every scary moment. Uh, The goldfinch gets an ugly. This is flat out the worst film I have seen this year. And I was, I was not even say bored to tears, I was angrily bored. Like, it was just, it was it was rough. It was real rough. So, like, it's an ugly, and then Renton City Comic Con 2019, of course, gets good. I had a really good time, even though I was only there for a short time. Got to hang out with some great friends, uh, like Nick and Dyer and Brandon and Renee and Abby and Marcel and Brian and Steven. And so, so many people. Uh, thank you to Renton City Comic Con for accommodating uh, me and those interviews. Thanks again to Dyer for being a board op and producer of co-producer of those two interviews I did with Jen Cohn and Jen Hammond. Uh, that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Next week, there will be reviews for what else am I seeing this week? Uh, I think Ad Astra, which is going to be great. And then uh, my guest for next week. Hopefully our schedules line up. We have been trying to get something together on the books for a while uh, will be Amy Simon, who is a fantastic local film critic. Uh, she writes for Three Imaginary Girls. Uh, I love Splatter. Like, she, yeah, she is incredible. So hopefully I can get her in the studio for next week's episode. But in the meantime, make sure to follow the podcast on social media at About review, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. If you want to reach out to the show, it is about to Review at gmail.com. And yeah, hit me up with suggestions. If you read The Goldfinch and you want to talk about it and say that I'm wrong because the book is great and the movie is great too, sure, go ahead. I will put it in spam. But yeah, go ahead. Reach out to me. That would be great. We can have a conversation about it. Uh, So yeah. So thank you again for listening. Thank you to Rencon once again and Dyer for your help with this episode. I have been your host, as always, that guy named John. And we will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby